we are legalese of bringing you truth, power, and awareness. My name is Mel Marie, and I have a guest today. I'm LG. And we'll be talking to you about our interesting episode. But first, let's get started with our hot topics. So, Drake Bell, do you remember him from Drake and Josh? Yeah. So, he got arrested for... Uh, what is it? Disseminating matter that is harmful to juveniles and attempting to endanger children. What do you think about that? So giving drugs? Um, maybe or just inappropriate messages to the children. There wasn't much information regarding that, but that's interesting to know that he went to the U.S., went to Mexico, and then he got arrested when he came back to the U.S. for talking to children. Hmm. It's like that uh, Hollywood crap. Yeah, that sounds not pretty on brand. Um, there's another thing. Do you remember the song Hit Em Up by Tupac? It was like a big like diss track. No. Okay. Well, it's a very popular song. <clears throat> that was like very popular like in the 90s. And apparently Ray J started that because he said that he saw Faith Evans on Tupac's lap in the studio. And that's where that whole diss came from with, you know, Biggie and Faith being together and then Tupac releasing that track. Mm. Ray J is just full of drama. He is full of drama. He's always drama. Even though Faith said nothing happened and she denied it. So. But you know, <laughs> music, the music industry is so fragile. I would, yeah. True. I said what I said. Another topic. Um, do you like Guardians of the Galaxy? Hell yeah. I don't I don't watch that stuff. You I got only, to watch it. I think I've only seen parts of like one of them. Like the last movie or the second to last movie. I thought we watched the Avengers together. Or okay, yeah, and the Avengers. They were in the they were in the last one. Yeah, but they last have their two. own movie. Yeah, Guardians of the Galaxy, like you are so putting that on to do list, definitely gonna be watching it. I don't wanna watch it. You're gonna watch all of them. Okay. Um, but apparently they have Square Enix. Um, they have like they're releasing the Guardians of the Galaxy. I think it's a video game um, on October twenty sixth. So if you're interested in that, just prep for that in the next coming months. So this happened today. This uh, so the Prime Minister of Israel, his name is like Benjamin. He had like the longest rule or reign for the Prime Minister in that. And Israeli's history. So he was the prime minister for 12 years. However, he was dethroned. Uh, yeah, he, yeah. Lost, <laughs> he lost to Neftali Bennett. And he's like a leader of the right wing Yemeni, Yamina party. And he will assume the position of prime minister on August 20 to, to oh. August 2023. Yeah, so to now until August 2023. That's interesting. I'm surprised it goes by that fat. Well, I guess that sounds normal because in the U.S. it's like November and then they get into office in January. That's interesting, but they do it in less than us. What do you think about that? Well, it's until August 2023 because uh, they, they got sworn in today. Did they? Yeah. Oh, I don't Off know. The article. I, I, was... I think it was this Sunday. Well, today. Today is Sunday. Interesting. 
But yeah, I think that would be, depending, I don't know much about their right-wing party. I don't know if it's similar to like ours in the U.S., but I think that's going to be a very interesting dynamic, especially with the relationship that U.S. and Israel had. Um, I think that may change once this person's in office. They may put bring the country to a different uh, you know, viewpoint or a different stance. Yeah, I think Israel just got Israel just has a lot going on right now. <laughs> yeah, they do, yeah. And so hopefully, I think they did this in like in hopes of making it better. Because I mean, if you were prime minister for twelve years and y'all ending, you just got overthrown, basically, then obviously you wasn't doing something right. True, especially since like he basically ended his term with bombing their neighbor, like Palestine. So I can see how that can like stir up some drama. Next topic. So this is really big. Apparently made news or didn't make enough news, depending on who you are. Hunter Biden was, he had text messages that were revealed and it was, he had, he used the N word. He used that in his speech like several times and people were calling him racist. I, there's two things I want to say about this. First of all, the context of where she was using the n-word wasn't racist yeah. <laughs> to me it wasn't it was racist. like it was somebody talking to their as if somebody right. was talking to their friend I mean, which i guess they are friends you know what I'm saying? yeah it was his like attorney or something and second of all i don't know this is why white people need to like some people some black people give other people that aren't black this past to use the n-word and they use it so casually that when this what happens like when you get caught using this people are going to try to use it against you he yes the n-word is a racist word he did not use it in a racist context yeah i mean but um, it was using the hard r is is a racist word no, using both. the a is not racist both of them are racist i mean one means ignorant one means friend so i i don't think it's appropriate <laughs> regardless of the a the r i mean it's, it's not appropriate but i mean you have a whole, like, everybody's using it, especially now, you know. Uh, though, yes, you know, we as black people are like, you know, that's how we're, you know, y'all use it to demean us. We're using it to make us strong. Um, but there's no way in hell that we can police the entire, like, population. I get that, but it's just... Whoever took a screenshot of those texts, <laughs> fucked. Like, I mean, like, and, like, like that's kind of messed up. Uh, even if, I mean, it looked like somebody probably, like, hacked his phone or hacked, uh, like, I his iMessages, and that's how they got it. Um, but, I mean, the way he used it, now, that was one thing that he said that was kind of, like, what messed up. Uh, I don't think anything, I just don't think it was, the way he was using it sounded like someone who was very comfortable with using the word. That's honestly what it sounded like. So he's used it, he's used it often. I'm not, I mean, I'm not going to judge, but it is what it is. I mean, it's like, it, he was obviously talking to like whoever the other person is, like, friend, I mean, they're friends. So, um, like, they're joking around it then, you know what I'm saying? Like, he agreed and asked him, what up? Basically, what's up, my end? You know what I'm saying? If y'all don't want me to say it, then whatever, even though I am blackity black, but whatever. Um, but the only thing that I could see, like, probably, not necessarily racist, but more so of a uh, trying to force a stereotype is this phrase when you said uh he said uh he said how much money do i owe you because n-word you better not be charging me hennessy rates that's funny that is, i mean like <laughs> that was funny. 
That's something that I would say. <laughs> like, don't be charging me no handy prices from some lukewarm shit. You know what I'm saying? But he got like, money, though. That's the I thing. mean, I he understand that, but I mean, the way, like you told me earlier, the way you keep money is not to dish out money. You feel me? That's so true. he's trying to be cheap about it. I mean, Henny rates are definitely expensive, especially right now. They're going up, which is, though, we're not endorsed by Henny, but, you know, if Henny wants to give me a few bottles. No, thank you. <sighs> so, next topic. It's messed up. <laughs> um, I still think it was funny, though. I mean, I don't think that he's racist for using the N-word. I mean, if that's the case, then everybody in Everdom is racist for using the N-word besides black people. But we got Hispanic friends that say the N-word more than black people. But I think that's the problem. I think the problem is when you give people passes to say the N-word, yeah. then it causes issues like this where he is labeled as a racist when he wasn't even using it in racist context. That's yeah. what I'm saying. Anyway, next thing. There's a person, his name, their name is Art Laffer. He's like on Fox or whatever. And he said... People who are coming to people who are coming into the labor force fresh, not old timers, the poor, minorities, the disenfranchised, those with less education, young people who haven't had a job experience. These people aren't worth fifteen dollars an hour in most cases. All right, go ahead, go ahead. I think, I think that statement is particularly racist. I think it's very uh, classist. I think it's very belittling because especially people who make less than $15 an hour are more likely in the force of the jobs of like uh, customer service. So they're, you know, they're your fast food workers. They're your cleaners. They're your, um, what job, what else is like a low paying job? I don't know. Like they're, they're more in service work typically and they're getting treated horribly or they're having, to be in poor conditions, they are having to have a lot of stress at their job. $15 doesn't even cut it. Their $7.25 doesn't even cut it. Their $8 does not cut it. I don't I think it's very rude and disrespectful to say, oh, your work isn't valuable. You deserve minimum $2 or something, or you deserve to just live off of scraps. What do you think? Especially when he's making thousands and hundreds of thousands of dollars, you wouldn't do their job for nothing. You want to be paid, livable wage, livable uh, livable wages. Okay, so well, I the way I'm taking it, it can be it is classes, not racist. The reason why is race, reason why I say that because he said people who are coming. In, all right, so his main his statement was people the poor, who are hold on wait wait minorities oh, stop stop so it says. People who, who are coming into the labor force, these people aren't worth $15 an hour in most cases. The middle part, he states, not old-timers, the poor, the minorities, the disenfranchised. He's saying not these people, the people who are coming to fresh. Like, they don't have any uh, – they're just starting out into this stuff. That's what he's saying. Um, though it is still classes because, I mean uh, – Given to inflation and all that stuff, I mean, we should be making more than fifteen dollars an hour, honestly. Um, but I mean, most minimum wage jobs are were were supposed to be for like high schoolers or people who are fresh out of high school to like to make just not not to make ends meet, but to uh, get just to make a little money to like spend for like gas, food with friends, going no. out. And stuff. I mean, that's what minimum wage is. It's for your minimal needs. Well. I 
like minimal minimal things. You know what I'm saying? Not for hey, I gotta pay rent. Don't get a minimum wage job. Well, not that's, if, if that's your goal. Again, that is not accessible to everyone. Not everyone. Some people are in small towns with little jobs, and you know they have one person for their car shop, one person for their groceries, one person for their pharmacy, one person for their fast food or entertainment. Like you have to be considerate of the fact that not all of America is in a big city. Mm-hmm. So the jobs that you have are going to be limited. If you're in the middle of if you're, I guess, like in the middle of America, there's more coal, there's more trees, you know, like labor, that, that's the type of force they have. If you're in the south, right, in the coast, there's more probably like fishermen type of jobs or there's more like swimmer type of jobs, what like lifeguard, like depending on this, where you're located, you're not going to have the same opportunities because the needs of and the landscape that you're in is going to be different. So I do think $15 should be the bare minimum. Yeah, I'm, I'm I don't agreeing think, with you on that. I'm just saying that I don't think minimum jobs, minimum wage jobs were not created for people who are wanting to make a career out of that thing. Because like, like, obviously it's, going, it's supposed to go up. If you're stuck in minimum wage, you should probably reevaluate your position, what you're doing, stuff like that. Because like, I understand that you say, hey, I can't get out of this. Well, why haven't you like made shift leader or assistant manager? If it's still underneath that, then you should probably change your job. But, um, but I then mean, what but about st- bartenders and hostesses and stuff? They, I think that they should change. They should definitely change the, the wage for that. Cause I mean, it's, it's not even minimum wages underneath it. Um, bartenders in, in Alabama, I mean, we make, they make, they start off with maybe $4 and 25 cents, $5. And then they can go up to maybe six. But even, but, I mean, I think in Vegas, they started, like 10 or $15 an hour and they still get their tips. Yeah. But even in like waiters and waitresses, some of them are getting like two hours an hour and they're living off of tips. So I just think to make everything not equal, but like equal, like livable $15 an hour. Yeah. I I mean, yeah. Cause I mean, like I feel like the whole, like the, the, the service industry, like, bartending, wait, waiting, and all that stuff, that, that amount needs to go up because there's times when you don't have anybody comes into, coming to the restaurant and you're still making less than minimal wage. Exactly, so yeah. So that sucks. Like, and I've been, I've been a server, you know what I'm saying, uh, and bartending, and it's like days when you got people that don't even tip. So if I don't make at least $10, if I don't make uh, $10 an hour, there's a lot of times when I have to come out of pocket with paying, like if there's a busboy or... um or some, or like somebody else that I need to pay between that, I'm basically paying for that person's drink or person's meal. So I say that even like when I was working with retail, like that, I the amount of work you have to do, whether it's like lifting furniture or you know building furniture or even helping people with um, getting clothes or like the movement of items, especially if you're in a high traffic area, I just don't think eight dollars is enough. Yeah. I think we should agree that it is definitely a classist statement, but I disagree that it's a racist statement. I think okay. I know plenty of snobby black people that think the same way. <laughs> so definitely classist. Okay, sure. We can agree with that. Um, have you heard uh, Tiana Taylor? Do you know who Tiana Taylor is? Heck yeah. Mm. Uh, she's Iman. I don't know. Let me not even do that. She is a singer. She's an actress. She's a dancer. She's a model. She's a clothing designer. 
And she's also Iman Shepard's wife. And actually, Judy no, Iman and Shepard <laughs> is her <laughs> husband. That, Let's just be real like, because if it wasn't for her, I wouldn't even know who that man was. That's very true. Like, mm, that's very that's, true. She's beautiful. So beautiful that she is named. Uh, Maxim's sexiest woman alive. And not only that, she's the first black woman to be named that on their magazine. I I think she deserves it. She's well, she definitely is she deserves it. I think Tiana Taylor's body is goals. Okay. Her she has her this- attitude is goals too. Like I haven't I don't think I've heard anybody say anything negative about how yeah. she interacts with people. Like this is probably one of the most I'll say yeah, most attractive like woman like, ver- like as far as like uh her character mm-hmm. and her appearance like she yeah. like you know how some really pretty women they have horrible attitudes so it's like yeah you pretty but you ain't cute you know what I'm saying but this woman ain't <laughs> like Tiana Taylor, Taylor yes hundred percent agree gorgeous. with the statement yeah <laughs> you can cheat on me with her oh my god I'm just saying <laughs> and then, um. Oh, and El Salvador, do you use Bitcoin or what is it called? Like doggy coin? What is it called? It's doge coin. Sorry, excuse me. Whatever. The, you know, that type of cryptic crypto cryptocurrency. <laughs> oh, my God. Cryptocurrency. I don't use that. I don't use that stuff. I'm not. Yeah, I don't use it. I'm definitely like. Uh, interested. Are you interested? In I have some. Like I bought some. I just don't use it. Like you can actually buy stuff with it now. But. Yes. So that's what we're getting with. Um. So El Salvador, oh my gosh, El Salvador, they, (laughs) their legislative assembly passed a bill that declares Bitcoin as legal tender. And they're the first country to do that. What do you think about that? The word tender is weird, but I mean, um, (laughs) I mean, I think it's funny. It's funny that they are the first country to do that. I would definitely have thought that it would be like. Europe or something. Yeah, China, maybe Japan. Yeah, one of those because they're more ten like technology. Yeah, technolo- wow, I can't say technology. I'm talking savvy. about you and El Salvador, but, <laughs> but yeah, like those are that those are the countries I would have thought would have done it first. Okay, like, and I, actually, really surprised if they haven't done it yet. I, I know a lot of countries are talking about it. like they're having that conversation of should we make Bitcoin actual money? Because last. Ooh, I think the problem is that they they can't agree on currency. I yeah. And so like they want to make it where like, if you make one world worldwide currency, everybody has to adapt to it. And isn't that like a part of the new world order? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I mean, hey, I'm with it. You know, saying if you can give me a watch or like, get, you know, so you, have you seen the just movie? take the vaccine if that's if, how you if, feel. Have you seen the movie where like they have like a phone that's like embedded into their yes, arm? Yes, the one so with Justin Timberlake. With the, yeah, and like their eyeball can like shows like it's like a screen. You can see that person through the eye, and it's like I'm with that. I ain't gonna lie to you. If that was the case, vaccine me up. Anyway, if not, I don't want it. Anyway, the point it ain't happening, Captain. So the thing is, will other countries follow suit? And I think yes. I think the problem with Bitcoin is and Doge Coin, Doge, Doge Coin, um is that they're not stable. Like one day you can be a millionaire in Bitcoin and then the next day you're broke. <laughs> See, the reason why it's just like with other currencies because it's still it's still it's trading. It is because it's like trading and they're mining in a sense, mining for that that cryptocurrency. It's the way that they it. go about it. It's weird. But I mean, as far as like it 
it fluctuates because just like actual currency fluctuates. Like a dollar in America is not what a dollar in America was like 30 years ago. And like if you took a dollar from, well, if you was 30 years ago and you had five dollars from America and you went to the UK, my boy, you can live, you can live great. Like you, you, you can have, about? you can have you like some fun time in, no, you in the UK with five dollars. No, you can't. And our money is less money than the UK. Now it is. No, in general, it is. Anyway, the point is, do you think that countries are going to change and make Bitcoin a thing? Yeah. Probably not necessarily Bitcoin. They'll probably have to come up with a different one mm-hmm. um, and get everybody to transfer over to that one. Yeah. And also, what was I going to say? Elon Musk, he stopped taking Bitcoin as like a form of payment for Teslas. So, like, you can't use that money anymore. But that that was it for Hot Topics. Anything interesting else you want to add? Okay. We'll be right back with, we're going to take a break, and then we're going to get to the episode. Okay, so today we're going to talk about the story of White Boy Rick. And we're going to, before we do that, it's a background dense uh story so we're going to cover a lot of information before we get get to the actual main story and there's also smaller stories within his bigger story so first we're going to talk about detroit in the 80s there's several in detroit there's like the east side where there's more poorer blacks and more of like a disenfranchised communities and on the west side there's more like a high income earning area and middle class blacks uh, went typically they went more northwest and moved there whereas the poor blacks like we said before just stayed back in the east side and so before in the 70s around there there was an italian mob known as the detroit partnership and they at the time they had more control Uh, of Detroit and they were very influential in the beginning of the prohibition to the height of the heroin trade. And so between the seventies to the two thousands, there was a shift in in Detroit and the amount of crime and the substance use that was going on in the area. And so as crack entered the city of Detroit around the 80s, uh, drug kingpins and street crews like started to increase, which resulted in more militarization of the law enforcement and programs such as Operation Crack Crime, uh, eliciting more violence, uh, raids, and uh, targeting specific areas, and more arrests that was going on. Additionally, in the 80s, we see more. We saw Nancy Reagan having the Just Say No campaign, which basically started like the war on drugs. And as we see, that the war on drugs won compared to her campaign. And a, a part, paired with the militarization, the cops were also using drugs and was a part of some systems in Detroit. And there were reports saying that the cops were acting erratically or that they were somewhat under the influence and also engaging in 
harmful behaviors such as brutality and harming the citizens. <laughs> and so the gangs that were coming up in the 80s were the Young Boys, the Chamber Bros, uh, Best Friends, there was a person called Maserati Frick, and the Curry Bros. So now you know about the gang affiliations and what was going on in that community at the time. We're going to talk about uh, White Boy Rick's upbringing, how you got his name, and then continue on. So Richard Wershey was born on July 18th in 1969 in Detroit. His parents were Richard Wershey Sr. and Darlene McCormick. Um, he grew up with his sister, Dawn, and when he was five years old, his parents decided to get separated, and during that separation, Rick and his sister, who was three years older than him, decided to stay with their father. And their father, a little background about him, Richard Worshi Sr. Uh, was a street hustler, and he was kind of like known as a con man and did getting involved with a lot of like get rich quick schemes. Um, he didn't drink often, but he did have cases about record, a police record regarding domestic violence. And so the mother, in retrospect, she stated that she wished she never let her kids go to their father's house because of the situation that unfolded. Um, when Rick was growing up, the son, Junior, was growing up, he lived in the east side of Detroit, and he played baseball, he was a pitcher, he had really good grades, um, however, when he was with his dad, he would, again, his dad was a dealer, and was involved in crimes, and his dad would take him to gun shows, and he would help him and uh, my boy Rick would help him sell guns to people to help drive up sales. He was very charismatic. So that was something that they did together. Now here's the story and the key players. Um, you know, it's my boy Rick or Rick and his dad, uh, Richard Sr. The next, the next person is Coleman Young. He was the mayor of Detroit um, from 1974 to 1994. And he was a politician. He was well-known and respected in that community. Kathy Volson Curry, she's the niece of Coleman Young. And he considered her like a daughter. He loved her as his own. And then there was Gil Hill and he was head of homicide investigation, and he also got killers to stay away from the people he loved and cared for, or he was basically controlling or watching over. Next is the Curry Bros, as we stated that they're a gang, or they were a gang, and they're one of the biggest gangs that were involved, and they're gonna be very prolific in this story. And then next was Willie Bolson, which is Kathy's dad, and he was also Coleman Young's brother. The next person is Jimmy Harris, and he was a police officer that worked in homicide department um, with the Detroit Police Department under Gil Hill. And during his job, and while doing his job, he was tasked with making sure that 
He was helping the Coleman Young's, fam- uh, Coleman Young's family, making sure that they were safe and that they weren't uh, basically getting arrested. So now let's get into the story. In the 80s, there was a switch from sell- selling weed to crack and cocaine. And during this epidemic, there were over 800 homicides in a year. And there was, again, increased violence. One in five people who were who used cocaine were hooked and neighborhoods went from working class to crack houses and white flight occurred, which is basically a departure of white people in a community or a neighborhood to different areas. The population was so bad that the population of Detroit went from 2 million to 1 million to $600,000. I'm sorry, to 600,000 people. And during this time, Coleman Young, as we said before, he was the mayor, and he was trying to get a handle on the drug distribution in the city by having public initiatives to decrease crime and substance use. The initiatives resulted in corruption in law enforcement and more crime that was occurring. So we get, I gave you the list of the gangs that were going on and that were very prevalent in the area. Due to Rick also growing up in this area, he had black friends, he had black girlfriends, he had black business partners, and these were the people he were was surrounding himself with, um, basically like drug dealers. And so when he was growing up, he was so popular in the drug world that he be- got his name White Boy Rick. Um, the police department did not like that. He was very... Uh, close with the dealers, that he was um, in black areas and had black friends, had black mannerisms. Um, And they said that they also didn't like him because they thought he was a race trader and that he basically made money that they couldn't. And he was flaunting it at such a young age. Little did they know that he would be the reason why they had a good look. so remember how you just discussed how Richard Sr. was like at gun shows and frequented them often? Well, he also sold them to, on the black market. And he would tell the people in the FBI who he sold these guns to so they can arrest them or have raids uh, go to their house. Um, since Sr. was getting decent money from the FBI, he brought his son into this and made his son an informant at the age of 14 years old. And during their, uh, by giving information to the FBI over a period of time, they made over $35,000 with this act. And people from uh, the DEA, the CIA, the local uh, DPD, and other organizations used the information that um, Richard, white boy Rick, used or provided to them to get people arrested. And so they would take him at the age of 14 and 15 to clubs, um, to go to events and stay out as late as three o'clock in the morning. Granted, he was still in high school and he had to wake up like four hours later just to go to school. So they would have him doing these activities and the amount of information they got allowed for these agencies to have 11 to 13 raids a day. So the word of the day is an informant, and that means it's someone who provides social or cultural information to an investigator. So White Boy Rick is in the scene, 
And Coleman Young is trying to tackle this issue. To make matters worse, his niece, Kathy Volson, would also be using drugs and also dating the dealers and is in the scene. So she ended up marrying Johnny Curry. He was one of the big dealers and top dealers in the city and kingpin, kingpin in the city. And to protect her from harm or jail, Mary Young had 24-hour security surrounding Kathy. And they were called the Black Bag Squad. And they were basically instructed to not interfere with her or her husband's illicit activities. So they couldn't get arrested. They couldn't um, get pulled over. Nothing like that. Johnny Curry discussed um, at a time where he was stopped by a cop. And they saw the drugs in the backseat. And then they let him go because they knew who his wife was and who she was connected to. The mayor. Additionally, Gil Hill tipped Kathy and her husband off regarding their phones being wiretapped by federal authorities. And in exchange for this information, Gil um, was got accepted like bribes that they were giving him to dismiss or uh, disrupt any form of like homicide investigation that the Curry Bros were involved in. So between 1985 and 1987, this is where Rick's life takes a wild, couple of wild turns. So Johnny, the kingpin, heard of white boy Rick's actions and, and ordered him to be shot, allegedly. He denies this and said that he had no involvement of this. So the story goes... White Boy Rick goes, him and one of Curry's lieutenants skip high school and they were in the house and White Boy Rick was downstairs and the lieutenant was upstairs. The lieutenant called Rick down, called Rick upstairs and then he shoots him with a 357 Magnum gun. The bullet hits Rick and his intestine and his large intestine and the guy and the lieutenant did not call for 911. However, Lieutenant's girlfriend called 911 for assistance. Lieutenant and another male friend took Rick's body and were taking him, putting him in the car. Rick thought that he was going to die and that they were just going to dump him. However, the ambulance stopped them just in time to take Rick's body um, and put him in their care and take him to the hospital to get surgery and to hopefully keep him alive. At this point, because he was an informant, the youngest informant with the FBI, they, the FBI and Rick's dad got into it and had a big fight at this hospital because he got shot. The FBI did not want this information going out that a 14-year-old informant got shot because it would be a huge scandal and a bad look on their reputation. So they documented the shooting as an accident and then put him back into the neighborhood so he can get more information. After the incident, white boy Rick was deemed cool and like popular because he survived a shooting and um, he continued on. In 1985, 
um, there was a fight between Hearns and Hagler, and this is like a big boxing competition, um, and it was highly publicized, and many of the drug dealers were planning on going there, planning on showing up. Well, the FBI gave Rick a fake ID to make, saying that he was 21 years old and, what, $1,500 to go to this fight. The reason why they wanted him to go to this fight was because John Johnny Curry and another dealer, Lucas Leon Lucas, got into like a beef regarding a raid that occurred, and Lucas apparently told Johnny that he was going to give him tickets to the fight to basically repair and amend, you know, that relationship. Well, Johnny gets there. And he does not get these tickets. So Johnny's lieutenant, the same guy who shot uh, Rick, went to Leon's house and did like a drive-by and ended up killing Leon's nephew, Damien Lucas. And the nephew was 13 years old. So after that, going to the event, Rick did not get any information that he was supposed to get. So... He continued on his life, and a couple months later, fast forward, there was another hit sent out for him, and this person who was going to do that was going to be Nate Boone, and Nate Boone was a known uh, hitman. He was uh, paid by like dealers, um, very popular. He traveled all over the world to kill people, and... One day he pulls up, he sees Rick and he pulls up to the, he was in a van and the door was like slightly opened and him and Rick were at a stoplight. Before he opens the door to shoot Rick, his gun jams and Rick was in the car with one of his friends and told his friends to like go speed past the light to continue on. And so he survived that assassination. And Nate Boone has killed over 30 people in his career. By 1987, flash forward like another year or two, this is where the drama starts. Johnny Curry um, and some of his members are arrested for drugs, of course. And then while he's away in prison, Kathy, again, the mayor's niece, uh, began to date white boy Rick. And one day the law enforcement decided that they were going to do a raid on her home. Well, white boy Rick was caught up in the house and he had eight kilos on him. And on February 4th, and he was arrested, of course. And on February 4th in 88, he was charged with the intent to distribute substances, um, over 650 grams. And he served the longest non-criminal juvenile sentence in Michigan's history. So because there was a law called the 650 law that anything over 650 uh, grams um, would be like in prison to like several years, I want to say life, but that was repealed in 98. Again, 10 years later after he was imprisoned. And because Rick was, he was 17 at the time, But because it was 10 years later, he was basically grandfathered in. So he couldn't be free 
unfortunately. So during the trial, journalists made him out to be this kingpin and that he was associated with the dealers and that he was just, uh, that he basically was a big criminal and destroying the Detroit community. Kathy, who he was dating at the time, told him to get new lawyers. And the lawyers that she requested for him to get were Ed Bell and Sam Gardner. And these were lawyers that her uncle used in his day-to-day life and professional services. These lawyers told him not to worry about anything and that he was fine and he would be safe. And so he had his attorney that he was currently using withdraw from the pretrial and they did not mention that he was working with the FBI or that he was an informant in hopes to basically free him. The judge over his case, Judge Williams, gave him a $1 million bond and said that his actions were worse than a mass murder. To add insult to injury, the dealers and the shooters were paid to go in front of the news uh, news and other media sources and say that they were part of his crew, that he was a kingpin, that he was over them, that he was this, this big dealer, and that they were best friends to smear his image and to get him arrested. So by 2003, he tried to get parole and every five years, that's when you're allowed to have parole. And so in 2003, he served like, what, 14 years at this time and he wanted to get parole. The judge agreed. Um, Michael Duggan was the mayor at the time And he also agreed initially. And then there was a second letter that was sent out stated that he disagreed with releasing um, White Boy Rick. And basically stating that he was the downfall of Detroit and that he didn't want to have him released. Well, there was a... Also, the mayor, Duggan, said he didn't remember signing this letter. And under this letter, the second letter, was Sam Gardner's name. Again, we know that Sam Gardner was a part of uh, Coleman Young's team, and they just basically wanted to keep White Boy Rick arrested as long as possible. And so Rick believes that they just wanted to keep him imprisoned, as we stated. And additionally, White Boy Rick was also involved in another crime that occurred in Miami, Florida. And they said if he was released, that he was going to get five years. And he had to serve that crime. It was an auto theft ring that he was a part of. So instead of having a consecutive sentence, he had a co-occurring sentence. So he was going to finish his sentence with um, the drugs, and then he was going to go to Florida and do five years. And that's basically what he did. So he was released in 19, I'm sorry, July 14th of 2017 on parole. And then he went to Florida to serve the five years, but because of good behavior, he was released um, in July 20th, 2020. Now he currently works in in his, Basically, his mission and his goal is to partner with this 
organization called Team Wellness, and they're a center that is dedicated into enhancing the well-being of individuals by providing an array of behavioral services and physical health services, like they have dentistry, um, counselors, um, they have job, job offering services, and he also works with local agents, local law agencies to help other people that are incarcerated. He says that he did because uh, being in jail was like purgatory and it was lonely. He wants to also make sure that when people are released and free from prison, that they don't go back into a life of criminality, that they're safe, um, that they have resources to take care of themselves and find new jobs so they can pick themselves up. And he also doesn't want to have the label as white boy Rick. He wants to be seen as a new person and someone who can motivate people and help others. So that's the story of uh, white boy Rick and what happened with him. And he, like I said, he was, he made history being the youngest informant and uh, serving the longest non-drug, uh, yeah, non-criminal like offense. <laughs> and so this week, the song of the week is gonna be Maribas. A writer, and you can follow us on Instagram. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Breaker, um, and other platforms. So have a great day. Thank you for listening, and thank you for speaking our language. Bye.